Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing good this morning? A nice, cool August afternoon. Lord, I was, I was yesterday, we're partners with Rescue Me Project in Sheffield. They do an incredible job just reaching the community, mentorship programs, after school programs, the whole nine yards, and just love Dwayne Malone and everything he does. And so last year, they had their first kind of back-to-school event where they give backpack giveaways, free haircuts, you know, all types of stuff. They have a three-versus-three basketball tournament. So last year, he said, can you just come MC and, you know, kind of comment on the basketball game and, and kind of talk trash to other kids are playing? Which I thought was fine until you're making fun of a bunch of kids and you kind of feel bad as a pastor when you're just talking trash to a bunch of kids. And so last year I worked it, I got sunburned. This year he said, don't worry, you know, we got shifts. So I go, expect to be there about two hours. I didn't ask the follow-up question that there was only one shift and I was the shift. And so I got sunburned and all that good stuff. But it's a, it's a great ministry. If you don't know anything about it, uh, Rescue Me Project at Sheffield, just check it out. It's a great, great organization. As well, and this week has been a busy week with uh, Sunday night with the worship night, which was incredible. Just uh, Michael Wally was here, a friend of the house, and Pastor Brian and our team, and just seeing some full circle moments just between Micah and I know Allie and and some of our team that are here that have been mentored underneath him for a long time. It's just a special presence Sunday night. That's powerful. We're actually working on hopefully trying to get some of the songs from that night released so you can check them out more and more and more. And then we had prophetic presbytery on Monday and Tuesday, which is again one of my favorite things we do. Just watching God just really encourage and strengthen people in our church that need it. And I feel encouraged when I see our people that we love encouraged. And so it's just a beautiful couple days uh, of the Lord. And so we're going to continue our series today. And as we get ready for that, baptism Sunday is next Sunday. And if you have not followed the Lord in water baptism, you say, you know, why should I follow the Lord in water baptism? Because it's your first step of obedience in walking with Jesus. Right, Jesus got baptized, and that's how we follow him into obedience. And so maybe you've come out of a season of disobedience. Baptism is a step in the right direction. Maybe you've got some guilt and shame. Baptism is an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Uh, there's lots of things. Maybe you got sprinkled as a child. You know, baptism is immersion into the water. It represents the death going into the grave and the resurrection of Christ in your own life. And so you can register online or in the church center app as well. If you have Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Still in How to Be Brave series, part two, Daniel chapter three. A couple years ago, like we had COVID, we had Black Lives Matter, we had protests, and, and our church went through a whole lot. And it really wasn't even COVID that was the most difficult. It was some of the tensions in people's lives that were outside the walls of the church, whether it's politically or racially. And, and I remember we had done something where one Sunday we had a foot washing where we washed the feet of some more African-American brothers and sisters who have carried that flag for our church to be a diverse church for many years. And I thought, what can go wrong with that? And on our live stream, literally got destroyed by people saying, why are you washing their feet? They should be washing yours. Which just demonstrated the power of racism is still very well and alive. And so you started seeing people kind of get into camps, whether it was racially or politically or even COVID stances. And, and it was amazing because I'm a huge basketball fan. And I was like, at least we can watch NBA basketball, right? They're in the bubble, which I don't even know what that means. They're in the bubble and watching the playoffs. And if you remember this picture, Jonathan Isaacs, in the middle of the bubble kind of season, there was protests going on. And everybody began to kneel and wear these Black Lives Matters t-shirts, but Jonathan Isaacs didn't. During the national anthem, he stood, he honored America, but he also stood in silence, in a kind of a silent protest. And I watched, he got destroyed by everybody. 
Like he got destroyed by his friends, by his teammates, by the NBA, by media. And then other people try to take that and use it for something it was not intended to be used for. And so you watch this young man who stood on a conviction when everyone else was going a different direction. And people asked him, here's actually what he said. He said, I believe that black lives matter. And a lot went into my decision. And part of it is this. I thought that kneeling or wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt doesn't go hand in hand with supporting black lives. So I felt like just me personally, what it is that I believe is taking on a stance that I do believe that black lives matter, but I just felt like it was a decision that had to be made, that I had to make, and I didn't feel like putting that shirt on and kneeling went hand in hand with me supporting black lives. I believe that for myself, my life has been supported by the gospel, Jesus Christ, and that everyone is made in the image of God, and that we all forge through God's glory. Each and every one of us do things that we shouldn't do and say things we shouldn't say. We hate and dislike things we shouldn't hate or dislike. And sometimes it gets to a point where we point fingers whose evil is worse. And sometimes it comes down to whose evil is the most visible. So I felt like I wanted to take a stand on, we all make mistakes, but I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's grace for us and for you, and that Jesus came and died for our sins, and if we all come to an understanding of that, and that God wants us to have a relationship with us, that we can get, keep, get, get kept all of these things in order in our world that are messed up and jacked up. He said, I think when you look around, racism isn't the only thing that plagues our society, that plagues our nation, that plagues our world. I think coming together on that message that we want to get past not only racism, but everything that plagues us as a society, I feel like the only answer to that is the gospel. And he got destroyed for it. Right, so, so my question is this, how does a young man in his early 20s who has, is risking everything when everyone else seems to be bowing to one thing or kneeling for one thing, how does one person stand on their convictions? How does somebody, one, know what their convictions are, stand on it when it seems like the culture is trying to get you to go in their direction? How does one not lean into peer pressure when everything inside of them is saying to stand, but everyone around them is telling them to kneel? That's a difficult decision. And how culture works, culture works by consensus, by popularity, but the kingdom works through conviction. And so when you go with the consensus, you're going in the direction of culture, but when you stand in your convictions, you're being led by the spirit or by the kingdom. Because what culture wants, it wants everyone to look the same, talk the same, act the same, believe the same, and all these things. And it, what happens is when you're not like us, we will try to change you, compromise you, or cancel you. Father Pompo, who, who was an old school desert father in like 300 AD, said this, a time is coming when men will go mad. And when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, quote, you are mad, you are not like us. And I believe we've hit that time. And so today, how, how do you be brave enough to stand on your convictions when the world is trying to get you to give up your convictions or change your conviction or compromise your convictions? And here's what we're going to fall into in Daniel chapter 3. It says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image 
that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Like, like it's interesting, like the whole point of this statue was to get people to all bend down and bow at a certain time at a certain place. And so it was a commandment. And so in, in biblical times, this story is in chapter Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 1 and 2 kind of lead into this moment. And the book of Daniel is kind of this narrative of the Hebrews had been captured from Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed. They took many of the young people out of Jerusalem into Babylon and began to retrain them because they wanted them to be more Babylonian than they were Hebrew. And so they went through this whole procedure to kind of process them and educate them. And as what they're in Babylon, the whole point of the statue was to get the Jewish people to understand that God is no longer your God. Nebuchadnezzar is your God. And if you bow down, we'll train you through the music, through the media, we'll train you to learn to bow down at the proper time to save face so you can fit in with us. is literally what was happening. And so in Babylon, Babylon is two things, and this is very important. Babylon is an ancient city, and it's also a spirit. Babylon's a city, and it's a spirit. It's an ancient city. It's about a few miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. It's in the Mesopotamian, you know, delta where all the rivers come together, the Tigris and Euphrates and all those things. It was an extremely large city, about 200,000 people at this time. So mega city, huge city. It had the, one of the seven wonders of the world, if you'll throw that up, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that's Ishtar Gate. That is back then. That's how incredibly gifted Nebuchadnezzar was. It was an architect and engineer to build a city like that 700 to 800 years before Christ. Go to the next one with the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's still one of the seven wonders of the world. People would travel from all over the world to check out these hanging gardens. It's a real-life city. They're still digging it up and finding archaeology on Babylon. It's a city, but it's also a spirit. He said, how is it a spirit? Over and over again, the Bible refers to this Babylonian spirit as a spirit that moves people out of serving Jesus into serving the culture and the world. In Revelation chapter 17, it said this way in verse 5, and on her forehead was written a name, of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It, it's almost like the spirit of Babylon, once you get into it, you become infatuated and intoxicated with the things of the world. Like you get drunk on the things, you get drunk on violence, you get drunk on explicit material, you get drunk on power, you get drunk. It's a spirit that wraps you up in the world and makes you drunk on the things of the world. Revelation 18, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She, referring to her, the spirit, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for uh, unclean demons and I lost a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. You get drunk on sexual immorality in the spirit. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. 
lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so what was happening in this Daniel chapter 3 was Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get God's people to drink on the spirit of Babylon, to be intoxicated with her wealth, her influence, her materialism, her marketability, her social media influence, her sexual immorality, her violence, her power. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's goal, was to emplace this spirit of Babylon in place of the spirit of God. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is a real king, but he's also influenced by this spirit of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, for me, it's interesting that as this government official, one of his first things he does with these young Hebrew people was he tries to retrain them that God is not the ultimate authority, that government is the ultimate authority. And actually his process is he's trying to train them that the family is not the ultimate authority, God is not the ultimate authority, the government is the ultimate authority. And that's interesting to me because it seems like in our culture today, that's literally what our government's trying to teach us. They're trying to teach us, I know mom and dad, you have certain beliefs, but your mom and dad aren't your ultimate authority. And then they'll try to say, well, you know, I, I know your God is your God, but really government is the ultimate authority. And in the same spirit of Babylon, we see this coming to play today. And what really shocks me when you read through Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar was fine with people's religion. He was fine with the Hebrews. He was fine with Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He was fine with the religion as long as it benefited him. As long as it benefited his power and his reign, if he had a dream he couldn't interpret, he was fine calling Daniel, hey, help me out. As long as they benefited him with their, their gifts and their talents and their knowledge and their wisdom, he was fine with it. But when it began to threaten his power or reign, he was no longer fine with God, which is the spirit of Babylon today. Politicians are fine with your religion as long as you vote for them. But the moment you don't benefit them no more, they don't like the God you serve. And so you see Nebuchadnezzar in this place of trying to really grab control, not just of the power of Babylon, but of the hearts and the minds and the spirits of the people who were living in Babylon at the time. It's a powerful, powerful spirit. And many people believe this, many theologians believe the statue was not even a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It was actually a statue of a Mesopotamian god called Nebu. Everybody say it with me, Nebu, right? Where does that come from? Nebuchadnezzar, N-E-B-U, means he is an ancestor of Nebu, which is this Mesopotamian god, which I want to show you is this. The ancient Babylonian god Nebu was the god of scribes, writing, learning, prophecies, wisdom, fertility, and prosperity. And if you throw the next one up, what that looks like in modern times is this. That the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of the age, Nebu, is the god of media, social media, press media, literature, what books are allowed in schools, what books aren't in schools. I saw on Twitter this past week an elementary age storybook illustrated that was teaching kids sexual preferences, and not just a graphic, pornographic sexual imagery in elementary school. Why? Nebu is the god of literature. Education, prophecies, whether it's QAnon, whatever it may be, wisdom, sexuality, and influence. The spirit of Babylon, Nebu, is alive and well in our culture and in America. 
Like you can't look anywhere and not see its influence. You can't look anywhere and not see it's trying to bait people in to place their trust, to give up their convictions and place their trust in the spirit of Nabu. And so what is the, what is the process of giving up your convictions? Like we all have, and your convictions should be Bible-based, Jesus-inspired or modeled, Holy Spirit-given convictions that leads you through the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, we don't have the law anymore. We have the Holy Spirit that leads us through conviction. And so what is the process? One, the spirit of Babylon is going to try to get to change you. Like he wants to change you to look more like Babylon or more like Nebuchadnezzar than you do Jesus. If he can't change you, then the spirit of Babylon is going to try to get you to compromise your faith and your convictions. And if he can't change you and he can't compromise you, he's going to try to cancel you out of culture. That's the process of the spirit of Babylon. So number one is this. The spirit of Babylon wants to change your identity and your convictions so that you can fit into the culture around you. He wants you to change who you are, to change your identity. In Daniel chapter 1 verse 3, it says this. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Everybody say eunuch. It's important to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, to teach them. So this eunuch is teaching them, educating them, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, there's a lot going on in this scripture. You may say, well, it just sounds like it's kind of an introduction. No, there's a lot going on. What's going on is you're seeing the strategy of Babylon play out in the very first few verses. There's these young men. They take over Jerusalem. They kill most of the older people off. They kill many of the, the women and children off. They keep these, these good-looking, smart, educated young people, teenagers. They bring them into Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar calls out a eunuch and he says, I want you to teach them for three years. I want you to educate them on the language and literature of the Chaldeans or the language and literature of culture. And then I want you to change their names. Well, what does that, what does that mean? It means the strategy of Babylon is to circumvent the family to try to train your children in the ways of Babylon so you cannot train them in the ways of Jesus. The strategy of Babylon is to bypass the influence of the mother and father, to bypass the influence of religious or spiritual heritage and legacy, to remove that, to wipe that clean so there's no more memory of Jerusalem, there's no more memory of God the Father, and they have a fresh slate to redefine and re-identify your children with the culture more than your God. It's the strategy. And what's interesting to me is the strategy they use is he calls forth a eunuch. What is a eunuch? Eunuch in biblical times was somebody that served the king. They were a royal official that many times was castrated, right? So he was castrated. Why would they castrate them? So that way they could trust them around the king's wives 
They would castrate them so they're emasculated, and that's what he placed over these children. So in our culture, it would be like this. Where the school system says, we don't really need your parents' influence. You come to school, we're going to place people with different ideologies, maybe somebody who's transgender, to educate you and train you in the ways of the culture, the ways culture sees sexuality, the way culture sees family, the way culture sees religion, the way culture sees the world, the way culture sees the family. We're going to train them, and we don't need the mom and dad's permission. And by the way, not only are we going to do that, at the end of these three years, we're going to change your name from your Hebrew names, your God-given names, your family-given names. We're going to change your names. Now your parents don't even have the right to speak your name. We're going to give you new names that are Chaldean names, that are Babylonian names. They're no longer Hebrew names. So not only do they retrain their mind, they try to capture the heart, and they steal their identity. Look at the meanings of the names real quick. The Hebrew name for Daniel means God is my judge, right? So God is, he's the one that can judge me. Belshazzar means Bel, which is the spirit of Bel, the God of Bel, protects his life. So when Daniel's mom and dad were saying the name Daniel, 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 what they were saying was God is your judge. God is your judge. God is your, not Nebuchadnezzar, not us, God is your judge. Now what his name is said, no longer is this trust in God, now it's in Bel. Hananiah's name in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. Now Shadrach means under the command of Aku, which is a Mesopotamian god. Michelle means who is what God is. I mean, my identity is what God is and who God is. Now Meshach means who is what Aku is, which is a totally foreign god. You go on to Azariah, Azariah, Yahweh is my helper but Abednego is the servant of Nebo, which is the same God of Babylon. So what just happened was, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, the spirit of Babylon, steals the identity that was given to the children of Israel, steals their identity and tries to place in them the identity of Babylon. And that is the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon wants to steal the identity, the heart, the passion and the inheritance of God's children and replace it with cultural influence. Like you can see it. He's working to change. We see it in our school system, and I'm not a huge conspiracy. Most of y'all know me. I'm very neutral politically. I'm a kingdom guy. And, and when you see this, this strategy, what is happening is you'll see it in the church as well. Right, so if, if the true authority of God is God, family, then nation, what Babylon wants to do is make it nation, maybe family, then faith. And we see it on both sides of the aisle. They try to elevate the nation to be the highest priority and highest focus point. Then maybe family and then God. They want God to serve the family and God to serve the nation. Listen to me. God doesn't serve anything. You serve God. God does not serve America. The nation has to serve God. The, God doesn't serve the family. The family serves God. And so you see this strategy unfolding where a young child can go to school. And the teacher, we, even in, in our school system, our kids have had teachers try to teach them that their faith is wrong. They'll try to teach them, your parents really don't know what they're talking about. They're so old school. They don't understand the new times. And they will try to indoctrinate them with the culture of Babylon. 
even maybe not here, but even in other school systems across the nation, they will try to change kids' names without ever speaking to the parents. That's the spirit of Babylon. If the spirit of Babylon cannot change you, it will try to get you to compromise your convictions so you can have influence. Meaning, if we can't change your identity, you can still be a Christian. We just want you to walk and talk more like us than you do Jesus. Right? I, I learned this in some political theory stuff, that most nations, most political spectrums don't care about your faith. They are fine with you serving Jesus. They're fine with you loving Jesus. They just want you to keep that inside the house of God. When you walk out of here, as long as you walk and talk like a culture, as long as you walk and talk like culture, as long as you walk and talk like America, as long as you walk and talk like Babylon, they're fine with your faith because they want you to compromise your true convictions for the convictions of Babylon. And so that's a powerful. Compromise means an agreement in an argument in which the people involved reduce their demands or change their opinion or convictions in order to agree. I'm going to say that one more time. I'm going to paraphrase. Compromise is an agreement and an argument in which the people involved reduce their demands or change their convictions in order to agree. Or to allow your convictions to be less strong. Meaning there's tons of people that are believers that have compromised their values or their convictions because they want cultural influence or acceptance. I mean, I still believe in God, but I don't walk those out like Jesus did because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Let me tell you something. Your convictions were given to you by God. Now, there's a right way to share your convictions. We're not talking about opinions. I'm talking about convictions. God has given your convictions. Sometimes your convictions will expose the lack of conviction in other people. Right? Our family has strong convictions about things. I have a strong conviction about alcohol in a Christian's life. I have strong convictions on abortion. I have strong convictions on the gospel as a gospel of transformation, meaning if you've been uh, redeemed by Jesus, you should be transformed in the image of Jesus. I have some core convictions. Those convictions do not align with cultural convictions. And so in order for me to have social influence or social acceptance, either the culture is going to have to change their convictions or I'm going to have to change my convictions, that's called compromise. I lower my demands or I lower my standards so I can connect or fit in with this culture. What's going to happen is either you will fit in with culture or you're going to stand out. And for those not brave enough to stand out, you're going to have to compromise. Because the only way to function as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in a secular culture world is to stand out or to compromise. There are really only three types of Christians. I heard Mark Driscoll say this years ago. Three types of Christians. There's the godly, meaning you follow Jesus, you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you follow him, your identity is in him, you're godly. Or you're ungodly, meaning you don't, you just refuse to acknowledge Jesus, or you are compromised. Everyone in this room fits in one of those three categories. You're godly, you trust in the blood of Jesus, you serve Jesus, you follow Jesus. Or you're ungodly, you say, you know what, I don't even believe in God, I'm just here because my mama wanted me to be here, I'm here because my wife drugged me here, like whatever it may be. Or you're compromised where you say you're godly, but you carry the convictions of Babylon more than you carry the character of Jesus. It's heavy, it's pivotal. 
And what I think has happened over the last three years is that we're starting to see where COVID and elections and politics are starting to expose the middle ground. Where for years, compromise just looked like a good old Southern Bible Belt believer. Now you're starting to see there's this distancing between the godly and the ungodly, and the compromised are stuck in the middle trying to figure out which way to go. And what they, if you really narrow it down, a lot of the, the people who have compromised their values or convictions, what they've really said is, well, I love God, but I really love culture. And I think the reason that we've gotten here is because the church in the 80s and 90s and maybe early 2000s said, well, the church exists to reach culture. And so they started trying to become like culture to reach them. But what happened was the culture reached the church more than the church reached the culture. And now you're seeing this, this blending take place that starts to expose. And here's the three stages that we see in Daniel chapter 1 through maybe 7. The stages of compromise. These are very important. Number one, stage one, the spirit of Babylon tempts you to compromise your values. Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, it says they were trying to get them to eat the king's food. That, that food was not just, you know, what, bunions, baby. It was, it was food dedicated or sacrificed to the idol of Nabu. Right? So they said, if we can just get them to compromise, you know, maybe some of their values or maybe get them to compromise what they eat and drink or what they say and feel, then maybe we can slowly get them where we want them to go. Right, so the first stage of compromise, when you compromise some of your values for cultural acceptance, is the beginning of compromising of your faith. It seems slight, it seems small. Even Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were willing to die over eating food. Why? They knew it wasn't just food, it was a value. It was conviction. Stage one is your value. Stage two, the spirit of Babylon tempts you to compromise your Worship In Daniel chapter 3, it says, when we play this music, we want you to bow down and worship. And Daniel refused. Oh, oh what is that? It's culture will try to get you, one, to compromise your values, then what you worship, meaning what you idolize, what you prioritize, what you behold, and what you focus on. Right? It may not be a 90-foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar but it may be a screen you keep in front of your face 24-7. It may be social media influencers that you just wish you could be like them. It may be certain music or certain videos that are completely uncalled for for a child of God that you get enraptured. It changes what you behold. You'll sacrifice, you'll compromise your values or your worship or your priorities for the priorities of the world. Then stage three, the final stage, is the spirit of Babylon to try to get you to compromise your prayer. Right? In Daniel chapter 7, it says, hey, when we say this, you need to bow down and pray. Right? And they said, no, 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 we'll go to the fiery furnace over this. Well, what is that? Prayer is not just saying blessing your food. It's what you place your dependence and trust in. So it goes from values to priorities to trust. And at some point, you'll place your trust not in God, but in culture, or get this, when the next political campaign starts and they start promising you things, you'll start placing your hope and trust in a candidate more than you do God. And you'll begin to watch political videos more than you pray. Once you've hit that place, you've already become a spirit of Babylon carrier. 
And how, how, how does it get started? Those are the same. How does it get started? It's like this. You will pick up the values. You, you'll catch the values. Maybe you better, you'll catch the values of whoever you spend the most time with. Whoever. Whoever it is. Your mom and dad. Your grandparents. Your church family. The TV. TikTok. YouTube. Snapchat. You will catch the values of the people you spend the most time with. And that's why it's impivitable. The spirit of Babylon knew this. That's why he took the kids out of their families and placed them in a state-controlled school so he could retrain what they eat, what they drink, how they talk, and even their name. They knew that, right? So you catch those values. And in Psalms chapter 1, Pastor Lee Cummings shared this a little bit a couple years ago. This is the process of deconstruction. All right, so deconstruction is where you deconstruct your faith to kind of build something from culture. Literally, David, the psalmist, gives us this concept. You catch the values of who you spend the most time with. He said, blessed is the man who walks not, everybody say not, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law, or his passion is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he's saying, somebody from the kingdom, their delight and passion is in the law and in God's word and God's people. Go back to verse 1. But bless the man who walks not and stands not and sits not. So here's the process. If you've seen somebody deconstruct or they compromise, well, no, I don't really like the church, I don't really believe in God, you know, culture this, what about this? Here's what they do. First, they begin walking in the counsel of the wicked, right? Whether it's a relevant church trying to be cool and trying to fit in. They begin walking with sinners, right? When you begin walking with somebody, start picking up their behavior and their pace and their rhythm. Once they start walking, then they'll slow down and they'll begin to stand in the way of sinners. So now we're not just walking. Now we're standing, having conversations, sharing life and sharing values. And then finally, they sit in the seat of scoffers. What are scoffers? People who speak against God. And so I can point out every single person I've ever seen turn away from God, it starts with this. They start walking with people who aren't saved, walking with people who may be sinners, whether it's out of high school or girls are graduating, they go to college, they get new friend groups, they start walking with people who aren't saved. Then they decide to stand with them. Then finally they sit with them. Once they start sitting, all they're doing is taking in the values and the ideas and the passions and the delights of the world. And it happens to believers. It happens to adults. We tell our kids, be careful who you hang out with because you'll end up becoming like them. But then adults, we watch them hang out, they'll go to bars, they'll watch TV they should be watching, they'll be, get caught up in political theories and concepts that is training their mind. What happens is if your passions are greater for politics or for America than for the kingdom, you've already missed it. If your passion is for Alabama football, roll tide more than it is the house of God, you've already missed it. You've taken on the values of Babylon. And so if culture can't change you, if it can't compromise you, like it did Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, it couldn't get to them. Like they tried. They said, listen, if you do this, hey, we're going to throw you in the lines. If you do this, like it couldn't change. So what it tries to do then is cancel you. And call it cancel culture, call it whatever you want to. Cancel culture is, refers to silencing, isolating, and punishing those who say or do something that goes against cultural standards. Right? So... What, is that, what does that mean? 
It means if you don't believe like us, if you don't talk like us, if you don't live like us, we're going to remove you and isolate you from cultural acceptance. And for me, I could care less if culture accepts me. I live at 251 Hazelwood Lane. I don't care what happens really outside of my house. Yes, I gave her address. Everybody's invited. <laughs> I don't really care. Like, for me, like, if you don't accept me, it doesn't bother me. Right? Like, if, if you don't accept me for who I am, it doesn't bother me. Like, even with, with being an interracial marriage, people used to say, how do you handle that? I said, it doesn't bother me. I love my wife. She loves me. I don't care what you think. But this generation really cares what people think. And one of the greatest threats you can give them is saying, if you don't believe like us, you can't fit in with us and you're going to be by yourself forever. That's a threat. And that's what cancel culture does. It says, if you don't bow down and we bow down, we're going to leave you over there and you're going to be lonely forever. You're going to be blackballed forever. That is cancel culture. And it frequently goes beyond even just isolation to animosity towards you. Where not only do you not fit in, but we're going to make you the villain of the story. And no one wants to be the villain of the story. Nobody wants to be the bad guy in the story. But what happens is the King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the mouthpiece of culture, he's never the bad guy. He's always the hero. And if you stand up, you become the villain. Most people are too immature in their faith to handle being canceled by culture. That's why the church is so important. This is a place we stand together as kingdom culture. It's a place where there is no isolation. There's belonging and family. It's a place of protection and love and mercy and grace. Because out there, if you stand up when everybody else is kneeling, or if you kneel when everybody else is standing, you will be canceled. That's what they try to do in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8. Is, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, says, listen, if you don't bow down and pray, when this sound is heard, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. What is that? That's trying to cancel them. We're going to remove you from invo- We're going to remove you from culture, and we're going to cancel you. What do they say? Oh, I, I love this phrase in Daniel chapter. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you do whatever you need to do, and our God will deliver us. And even if He doesn't, we still won't bow down. See, what if you are brave enough to tell culture that? <sighs> oh, culture. You do whatever you need to do. Because my God can deliver me. My God can save me. My God. But even if he doesn't. You know what they were saying? What they're really saying is, I would rather be canceled by culture and favored with heaven than to be canceled by heaven and favored by culture. See, the favor of heaven will take you much further than the favor of culture will. The favor of culture is temporary. And it will move and it will change. It will shift on you quicker than you can blink an eye. But the favor of heaven lasts forever. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego goes, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you do whatever you want to do. I'm not changing my convictions because you threaten me. I'm not changing my values because you have a separate set of values. I am walking in the favor and fullness of God. And what's amazing is he watched God's favor on their lives since they came to Babylon. 
And what that just tells me is the world likes your favor when it works for them, but it doesn't like your favor when it works against them. And so you have to be confident enough in the favor of God and confident enough in your identity in Christ that no matter what culture threatens you, you are unwilling to sell your convictions and your identity out for cultural acceptance. Do you realize that? When you realize, I think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think they really knew their identity, their heritage, their inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And so they said, hey, if, if, if you worship, if you, if, if you don't worship, when we worship, we're going to, they're like, really? Like, why would I sell out what I've been given? You may be King Nebuchadnezzar. But I serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm not going to sacrifice. I remember Billy Graham, they asked Billy Graham, will you run for president of the United States? He said, why would I take a demotion? I think that's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying. They're saying, why would I demote myself to worshiping you when I worship the King of kings? And they were unwilling to sell their identity in Christ. So you didn't know that your identity in Christ is the most important thing about you more than anything else, that you are his own special possession. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were born on purpose and for purpose. You are chosen, handpicked by God who created the entire universe. You are treasured by God. You are irreplaceable. You are the head and not the tail. You are loved unconditionally and beyond compare. You are worth and are worth dying for. You are forgiven unconditionally. You are a child of the most high king. You are safe and secure for all of eternity. You are and have been set free, and you are precious, more precious to him than anything else in the world. And you have been set apart from this world for God's glory and for his purpose. And there's nothing, nothing the world can do or offer you that's worth trading that in or worth compromising that for. I'll tell you, it's already here, but it's coming even more. It's going to take bold, courageous, brave faith to stand up, not for opinions, not for political candidates, but for true Holy Spirit-given convictions that ask you to compromise the kingdom for things of this world. I'm here to tell you, the Bible is full from beginning to end of people just like you that refused to compromise. And by refusing to compromise, God gave them an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, waiting for you in heaven to obtain when you finish your race. And I say it for us, for our people, the time is coming where culture keeps pushing and pushing forward. And that line between the godly and the ungodly is getting greater and greater and greater. It's going to get harder and harder to hold the tension of compromise. And God is calling you to go all in to serving the king instead of serving culture. If you would, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just one quick second. Three types of people. Godly, ungodly, and compromised. I know most people don't think of themselves as ungodly, but ungodly means this. If your trust is in anybody or anything else other than Jesus, if you live your life in another way, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, yeah, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get my life right with Jesus. I said, this is what that means. You realize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You realize that he's the way. That's salvation. You realize he's the way. 
and you begin to learn the ways of Jesus. Then you begin to follow the ways of Jesus. And you begin to share the ways of Jesus. If you're living your life in any other way than how Jesus created you and showed you and exampled you to live by, that probably means you're ungodly. Or maybe you're compromised where, you know, you say you're a Christian, you say the name of Jesus, but you look more like Babylon than you do Jesus. You talk like Babylon, walk like Babylon, live like Babylon. God is calling people from Babylon into the kingdom. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come forward. But you said, that's me. I need this day to be a new beginning for me, a fresh start. I'm not going to have you come up. Stay. I'm not going to do any of that. But I am going to ask you to just raise your hand in just a second. Because I want to see you. I want to be able to pray for you. But two, I want to point you in some directions for the next steps to help you in that journey and help you gain the bravery and courage to stand up in Jesus. Pastor, you said, that's me. I, I, I need to draw that line today. I need, to, I, I need that new beginning. That's me. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You raise anybody else. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Wait just a second. I'm going to pray in just a second. If you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to do a huge favor. Before you leave today, just swing by connection points in the main lobby. Say, hey, I raised my hand um, with Pastor, and they got a, some gifts are going to place in your hands to help you, but also we want to follow up with you so we can help you along the journey. This is the beginning of a walk with Jesus, not the end of a thing. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. I thank you for these, this incredible church family. Thank you for an incredible week here at Chapel. And I thank you for those, while the Holy Spirit you're working on, you're drawing into you, drawing into your kingdom. I pray in this moment, Father, there's a confession, a need for you. I pray there's a repentance or change of thought from one way of living it, from Babylonian to kingdom. So, Father, as they confess, I pray that you forgive them of all unrighteousness, that you allow the blood of Jesus to wash over them and renew them, make them new. Take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Allow for them to begin walking this journey in a complete trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you surround them with people that encourage them and strengthen them along the journey and use them for your glory and for your purposes. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.